0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well again, my name is Kent. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 9. I feel nice and echoey up here. Do you all hear that? It's not like I'm in a cave right now. Marcus is hard at work doing something about it back there. He's going to do great. Matthew chapter 9. Um... So, I'll tell you guys a funny story. Uh, this morning, in the 9 a.m., uh, I, uh, the plan was for Eric, one of our pastors in training, to give the teaching today. I was taking the week off, um, just being here, getting to sit in the gathering with you guys. Um, Eric got up here at 9 to give the teaching. Uh, he got about three minutes in, and he said he didn't feel well, and he walked off stage and looked at me like I was supposed to do something about that. Um <laughs> And so I found out that I was teaching the uh, 9 o'clock sermon today as it happened. Uh, I found out along with everybody that was at the 9 o'clock gathering that I was doing that. Um, So I did my best uh, having just looked at his notes uh, to kind of give that teaching. It was a very exciting start to the morning. I I didn't need any coffee after that. I was just ready to go, Um, and now since I've had at least 45 minutes to become familiar with his notes, I'm basically an expert now, so you guys have nothing to worry about. It's going to go great, Um, but in all seriousness, uh, that did make me really thankful uh, for how we do teaching at our church, so uh, some of you guys may know this, some of you guys may not, Um, The way that we do teaching uh, at City Church is actually in a team format. So by the time a a sermon gets preached from up here on stage, um, it's already been looked at uh, probably three or four times by a group of people. It's a group of people in our church. Some of them are staff, some of them are volunteers, men and women, all of that. Um, and so we actually look at the teaching several times before they ever get taught up here on stage. And, and you know, that's, that's helpful for a lot of reasons um, that we won't go into today. But Uh, It's especially helpful when the person who's supposed to teach the sermon has to walk off stage and somebody else has to teach it um, because ideally there are actually several people in the room who have already seen the sermon at least for a few weeks even if they weren't prepared to teach it. So I was very thankful uh, for how we go about that, especially this morning. Um, But all that to say... um, This morning is one of those times. So if I look down at my notes a little bit more than normal, if I forget what I'm saying and talk about something completely random, uh, hopefully you guys will forgive me on that, uh, show me a little grace on that, um, since this is kind of, I'm, I'm looking at this for one of the first times along with you guys. But that said... Uh, We are going to continue on in our Matthew series this morning. Uh, So if you are just coming around for the first time this morning, or maybe you just need a refresher, um, we are currently studying straight through the book of Matthew in the Bible. If you're unfamiliar, uh, Matthew is the first of four gospels, is what we call them. But really, they're just first century biographies of the life and ministry of of Jesus. Matthew is the first one that we get and we've been taking the better part of what will probably end up being a few years as a church to just study through this book of Matthew sort of line by line, story by story along as we go. So um, we hope that we're going to finish in a couple years. Who knows what's going to happen? It might be a lot of years um, but that's what we're doing. Right now We are in a section of Matthew where uh, we are just looking at the people that Jesus interacts with. In in chapters 8 through 10, there's kind of a, a special focus on the different various types of people that Jesus interacts with during his ministry. Some of them are big fans of him. Some of them are not fans of him at all. They actually despise him and hate what he's doing. And a lot of people are somewhere in the middle. They're trying to figure out who he is and how to respond To him. And so that's what we're looking at right now in chapters 8 through 10. And in today's passage, the stories that we're going to look at this morning, there's three or four of them that we'll look at. The focus in these stories is on one particular thing that Jesus sees in the people that he interacts with in these stories. And the thing that he sees in those interactions, in those people, is something called faith. Now, faith, uh, coincidentally, is what I had to have this morning when I was preaching a sermon for the very first time that I'd never looked at the notes for before. That was one part of faith. Funny how God did that. But faith, I think, also is one of those words that a lot of people use, especially within Christendom. A lot of people use the word faith, but a lot of people don't necessarily understand what it means, at least not in its entirety. So just try to think about, you know, if somebody sat down over lunch with you or over coffee with you, and they weren't a follower of Jesus, they had no context for religion or Christianity or any of that, and they just asked you, what is faith, what would you say? How would you describe what faith is? I I think, at least some of us, myself included, I think we would grasp for words a little bit, right? I don't know if we know exactly how to put it. I think it's a word that a lot of us use, but we maybe don't necessarily understand what it means. Now, there are a lot of words like that, right? Like love is another word that I think we use a lot, don't necessarily understand what it means. We say that we love all kinds of things when really most of the time what we mean is we just slightly prefer that thing to other things, right? Uh, Another word, this is a, a special pet peeve of mine, another word that people don't understand is the word irregardless. Because it's not a word. It's a made-up word. Uh, the, the word that you're looking for is actually regardless, and we just added letters to it for no reason at all. Doesn't mean anything different. We just say irregardless. So that's a pet peeve of mine. But there are all kinds of words that we use that we don't necessarily understand fully what they mean. And I think on a more serious note, faith is absolutely one of those words. I think mean, we use the word faith a lot, but maybe we don't fully comprehend what is meant by it, or at least our definition of it at a functional level may not align with the scriptural definition of it, with how faith is defined in the Bible. And so that's what we're going to try to get at today, but we're going to get at it through these stories that have been collected for us in Matthew chapter 9. So let's take a look. We'll pick it up in verse 18 to start with. While Jesus was saying these things to them, Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed the man to his house with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in the house, he took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went all throughout that district. So, First story in front of us, there's a couple things going on here that we need to sort of navigate through. But the first person that we see in this particular account before us is a ruler. Now some of your translations might say a synagogue leader, those are the same thing. So this is a a religious leader of some sort who comes and kneels before Jesus and asks Jesus to bring his daughter back from the dead. Now what's interesting is that we miss some of this in the context of the passage but th- his daughter had actually been dead for at least a little while. We we find that out because when Jesus eventually shows up there are already mourners there the funeral to some degree is actually already underway. So this is not like she had just passed away that second. She had been dead for a little while. But this man comes before Jesus and says I want you to heal my daughter, I want you to bring her back from the dead. And that's what ends up happening. Now, I want to be careful here because I think for some of us, I mean, we're reading through the book of Matthew and we've covered all these different stories of Jesus healing people and bringing people back from the dead and doing all these miraculous things. I think it's easy for us to read a story like this at this point and go, yeah, that sounds like a totally normal thing for Jesus to do. It makes sense that this guy would approach Jesus. But think about it. Dead people back then stayed dead just like dead people do today, right? Like we're all clear on that. So even though for us it might seem run of the mill, it might seem like total common sense that this guy would seek out this particular thing from Jesus, this was not a common thing. It was not a common thing to have your daughter pass away and then go ask somebody to make that untrue after the case. I mean, it takes an incredible amount of boldness and persistence and faith and courage to approach a man like Jesus and ask him to do a completely unimaginable thing. But that's what this man does. He goes up to Jesus, wants him to bring his daughter back from the dead. So there's something in this man, this synagogue Leader that, that prompted this approach to Jesus. He, he wasn't just sitting back in his house thinking, man, I really hope that Jesus guy shows up. I could really use some of his, his skill sets around now. Around now. Or, or he doesn't just say, I hope if I, if I hope hard enough, maybe Jesus will just show up and he'll walk in and he can help me. He knew where Jesus was. He knew what Jesus could do. And so he went and found Jesus. And knelt before him and asked him for this. He was moved to action because of his faith. So Matthew says that Jesus follows the man back to his house. Now, on the way back to this man's house to see what he can do about this man's daughter who has passed away, we actually encounter an interruption. Or rather, Jesus does. In verse 20, there is a woman who is suffering from perpetual bleeding for 12 straight years. Now, something I find interesting is that these two people, the two people that Jesus has encountered so far, the synagogue ruler and this woman who is suffering from bleeding, could not be more different from one another. So the, the synagogue leader, he was, he was a person of standing in the religious community. He was an elite, so to speak, within the Jewish community. He, he had authority. He was someone who was in the public eye. And the next was a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, the reason I say they are opposites is because there are a few different cultural and societal factors going on here. According to some scholars, this woman would have been in a pretty desperate position both medically and socially speaking. Based on laws at the time, a woman would have been considered unclean if this was happening to her and would most likely have stayed unmarried or if she was married, would have been divorced as a result of this. So she could have thought to herself, I wonder if Jesus will see me and if he sees me, maybe he will heal me. That's not what she does though. We read that she says to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. I will be made well. So in this extreme act of desperation, she reaches out to this teacher, this rabbi named Jesus, knowing full well that under the law, it would have made him unclean as a result of contact with her. Now, there's something interesting that I want to point out here, and it's a a little bit down the Bible nerd rabbit hole, so hopefully y'all will forgive me for that, but I I think it's worth mentioning. So Matthew clarifies that the woman specifically touches the fringe of Jesus' garment. Did you guys see that in the passage? Now, that's a little bit strategic in how Matthew describes these events, The fringe of a garment, for those who don't know, is the very edge of his cloak, the sort of overshirt that he had on. It's basically the outermost point of him that she could have touched. Now, there are actually a couple times in the Old Testament when the edge or the corner of someone's clothes were called the wings of their garment. So I want you to look with me at Malachi uh, chapter 4, verse 2. We'll put it on the screen so you don't have to turn there. Here's what that says. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So that's talking about the sun. Basically what that verse is describing, it's poetically describing the day when the Messiah would come. It's pointing to that day. And it says that when he shows up, there will be healing in his wings. This woman touches the wings of his garment. So whether she knew what she was doing or not, Matthew is trying to show us by the way he describes this scenario that she is approaching the man who is the Messiah expecting him to do what only the Messiah could do. She perceives who Jesus is and she moves towards him. And despite her own social standing, despite the shame and the stigma associated with it, she decides to take a huge risk and an active step towards Jesus regardless of the consequences of it. Because she believes Jesus is who he says he is. So Jesus, being God incarnate with all the power and ability to make this happen, he could have just let this happen and let this woman be healed discreetly right? Without without changing anything he did, he could have gone about his day without acknowledging that anything had happened at all. But instead, Jesus turns to this woman and acknowledges her. And not only does he acknowledge her, he holds her up as an example of what faith is. He says, this woman's faith has healed her. His specific words are, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. So what has made her well? Her faith. Jesus doesn't say, I have made you well, even though that would also be true, right? He says, your faith, daughter, has made you well. That's significant. We're going to come back to all of that. Let's keep going through the passage for now. So Jesus heals this woman. He keeps going en route to the other man's house, the synagogue leader whose daughter has passed away. When he gets there, we read that he sees people mourning and going through the funeral traditions of the time. So this is not immediately after she's died. She's been dead for some time. They've already started the whole funeral process, which explains why Matthew says that the people at the house laughed at him when he said, this girl is only sleeping. It would have been a completely ridiculous, completely baffling thing for Jesus to say at this point in the game this guy went out of his way, seeking Jesus in the midst of what he was doing. He knelt before Jesus, asking him to come to his house to heal his daughter. He seems pretty sure that there is some value to asking Jesus for help in this situation. And what does it say that Jesus does? He brings the man's daughter back from the dead. So we've got a lot going on already. We're going to keep powering through this passage. I promise we'll tie it all back together. Let's keep moving forward. Take a look at what happens next in verses 27 through 31. Here's what it says. And as Jesus passed on from there, casually as one does after raising somebody from the dead, right? As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David." When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord, we do. And when he touched their eyes, then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. So next, in Matthew's account, we find two blind men who are following Jesus. Now, these guys are particularly interesting, in my opinion. So we read that they're blind, which by definition means that they've never actually seen Jesus do anything. They've never witnessed his actions with their eyes. They only could have been told about what he was doing. But look at how they choose to address Jesus when he passes by. They say, son of David... Have mercy on us. Son of David. Now, if you were a part of Jewish culture at this time, you would have known that that title, Son of David, was reserved for whoever they thought the Messiah was, this coming king who was going to make things right for the people of God once and for all. These men recognize immediately, despite their blindness, that Jesus is who he says He is. They recognize that He's the Messiah. Now note in verse 34, I think this is important if you look down at the end of the passage that we're going to read today, the Pharisees respond to all of this by attributing Jesus' healing and miracles to Satan. Down there in verse 40, 34, they blame all that Jesus is doing and say, He must be a part of Satan's kingdom for doing all this. So notice this. Matthew is poetically demonstrating to us, the readers, that at times in the kingdom of God, seeing men are blind and blind men see. Do you see that in the passage? So these men, the the Pharisees who are well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, they know all about the coming Messiah. They know all about who he's going to be and what it's going to look like and how it's going to happen. They know everything that there is to know, or at least so they think about the coming Messiah. And he shows up on the scene, starts doing everything that he said he was going to do, and they attribute what he's doing to Satan. But the blind men who have never seen Jesus do a single thing, immediately recognize him as the Messiah. Blind men see, and seeing men sometimes are blind. I think it's worth noting at this point in the story, this doesn't really have anything to do with what we're gonna talk about for the rest of our time, but I think it's worth noting that a lot of times that's the case today. So there, there is a way to grow up in church, to grow up around Christianity, as a part of Christianity even, To know all sorts of things about Jesus and who he is and what he does, and yet still be completely blind to who he is and what following him looks like. Do not confuse Christendom with following Jesus, they are not the same thing. As evidenced by the fact that in this passage, the men who were supposed to be a part of the kingdom, they were supposed to be the ringleaders. They were supposed to be the people that really understood what was happening with the kingdom of God, and all they can do is attribute who the Messiah is to Satan himself, while blind men see. So if there's anything we can learn from this passage, it's that knowing about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing him and recognizing his authority in your life. These blind men, having never seen anything Jesus has done, never seeing Jesus at all, heard about what he was doing and heard where he was and they went and found him asking for his help. They were so confident that Jesus could heal them that when they found out where he was, they did everything in their power to get there. And just like I mentioned earlier, at this point in history, blind people tended to stay blind, right? Blind people tended to stay blind, but in this story, the blind men start to see. Like the synagogue leader in the story above, they were confident in who Jesus was to the point that they sought him out and asked him to heal them. So they go out of their way, they take deliberate, intentional actions based on what they confidently believe to be true. They did something that only made sense if Jesus was who he says he was. And once again... We see Jesus highlight that action in their life. He says once again to them, according to your faith, you are healed. It's their faith that is the operative agent in this interaction in some ways. Now, let's keep reading the last account in this collection of verses. Let's take a look at verses 32 and 33, and then we'll come up for air and talk a little bit about what all of this means and the impact that it has on us today. Verse 32 As they were going away, behold, a demon oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now, this story is a little bit different from the others in that Jesus does not specifically use the word faith to describe what happens, right? He doesn't use the word faith this time. But we still know that the story has to do with faith. We know that because just last week in the passage where the people brought the paralytic to Jesus, it says that Jesus healed that man or forgave that man's sins in response to their faith. So we know from context that when a group of people bring a person who needs healing to Jesus, that to Jesus communicates faith. And that's what happens again in this passage. It says people bring this demon-oppressed man to Jesus for healing. They demonstrate their faith. So while this passage doesn't give quite as much detail, we can understand and piece together what is happening here from other stories. We see multiple times Jesus saying that it's people's faith that brings them healing. So even though faith is not specifically mentioned, we know from context that it's still a story about faith. So in all three of these sections of Matthew, all three of these stories, all four of these stories, excuse me, we see a common thread woven through all of them. In all of these different situations, we see faith as a central piece of the story. In several of the situations, Jesus highlights that. He literally tells people that things happen because of their faith in their approach to him. Apparently, when you are relating to Jesus for healing or salvation or any number of different things, having faith and possessing faith is an incredibly important ingredient to that whole interaction. So, we should probably spend some time before we're done talking about what faith is exactly. Right? We got to talk about what faith is because apparently to Jesus, it's incredibly important. If if you were to ask just a collection of people randomly in your life what faith is, I think you would probably conclude from their answers that faith is some sort of uh, indistinct, intangible, spiritual part of our life, right? And that's roughly the definition that people use. My faith is sort of the spiritual side of my life and existence. So we show this when we say things like, Uh, my faith is important to me, or I'm struggling with my faith right now, or I want to grow more in my faith. When we use the word in that way, what we're saying is our faith is sort of the spiritual side of our life. Now, I, I don't think that's incorrect. I don't think it's wrong to talk about our faith in that way or believe that that's what faith is. But I think I would say that based on Scripture, it's a bit incomplete to think about faith that way. You see, Jesus' interactions with all these people that we just read about, the four different people he interacts with, they tell us that Jesus sees people's faith by their actions. Did you see that? In every single one of the stories. Now, that's interesting that he highlights their faith because there's no evidence from the stories that Jesus has like a side conversation with any of these people to talk about the spiritual component of their life, right? Right? He he doesn't like talk to them about that part of their life and then conclude that they have faith. It says that he simply witnesses their actions, their approach to him, and in that he sees, he discerns faith in them. Faith apparently is something you can see in people, something you can see in their actions. So, Here's how I think we might wanna define faith. Just if you're looking for a definition to sort of take home with you, here's how I think we might define it. Faith is doing things that only make sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is when we do things that only make sense if Jesus is who he says he is. So a religious leader would not come kneel before a random person walking down the street and ask that person to bring their daughter back from the dead. That only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is, that you would do that, that you would ask him to do something like that. A a woman who is suffering from bleeding for 12 straight years is not going to go up and touch every random person's garment in a crowd in hopes that they might heal her. She specifically approaches Jesus because she believes that Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, Blind men are not shouting at a random street corner for every random passerby to heal their blindness. They're only doing that with Jesus as evidenced by the fact that they use the title Son of David when they address him. And then finally, the people that that bring the demon-oppressed man to Jesus... They're only doing what they're doing because they believe Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is doing things when we do certain things that only make sense if Jesus is who he says he is. So obviously, faith has an intangible, immeasurable component to it, for sure. It's it's undeniable that it does. But based on Jesus' interactions with people and what we see in the scriptures as a whole, it can't just be that. It wouldn't make sense if it's just that. According to these stories that we read today, faith is something that is tangibly displayed through your actions. Faith is something you can see in a person. We see this laid out clearly in a number of different places in Scripture. I think most clearly in this verse from the book of James. So look with me on the screen at James 2 verse 18. Here's what it says. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, some people will try to act like their faith and their works are actually separate things from one another. Like like faith is sort of the spiritual component of your life and, and works are the physical, tangible part of your life. But James continues, he says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you see what he's doing there? He's essentially saying, I think faith is displayed through your actions. I, I don't think faith is sort of this intangible, immeasurable part of your life. I think faith is displayed by you doing things that only make sense if Jesus is who he says he is. We show our faith by our works let me pause here for just a split second and, and, and point something out that, that is a caveat to all of this. I do want you to understand that you can't flip this around, okay? So Jesus says our faith is displayed by our works, but you can't flip that because if you flip that, you get Jesus approves of my faith because of my works. Jesus approves of me because of what I do. You cannot work your way into faith But your faith is displayed by what you do in response to your faith. That's what James is getting at. According to scripture, faith is much more than a spiritual idea. It's more than just this intangible spiritual part of our life. And it's also much more powerful than I think we sometimes think. So let me just see if I can give you some examples of what faith looks like in practice. Just so we kind of know what we're talking about in regards to all of this. So... The first example we thought of as a teaching team when it came to examples of faith is how this church, City Church, started. Some of you guys know the story, some of you may not. There were a group of 25 people who were living in Columbia, South Carolina. We were all a part of a church there. We were all part of friendships there. A lot of us had family close by there in Columbia. And all of a sudden, we started talking about what it would look like to create a new church in a new place. What it would look like for us to help people in a different city, Knoxville, Tennessee specifically, come to know Jesus and experience church family like we had experienced it there. And so what happened is a group of 25 people uprooted their lives. They left a lot of family, a lot of friendships. They moved further away from most of those things and planted themselves in a new city so that people could come to know Jesus there. I would argue that only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. That only makes sense if Jesus is worth inconveniencing your life for and is worth removing yourself from relationships with people that you love. And he is. And that's why it is an example of faith. There are probably countless other examples that we could give of just these extreme acts of faith. I mean, a lot of you guys know people who have moved overseas, have moved thousands and thousands of miles away so that they can tell people about Jesus that have never heard of the name of Jesus before. A lot of you guys know people that have believed God for the impossible in impossible types of scenarios, whether that be financial or medical, and seen God come through in incredible ways. And those are all examples of faith. Right? I think we all probably look at things like that and we go, yeah, that's faith. But I think it's easy to miss that, that faith very much has an everyday sort of component too. I don't think faith is only displayed if you uproot and move yourself thousands of miles away or bare minimum to Knoxville, Tennessee, right? I, I don't think faith is only displayed in those types of sort of grandiose obedience. I think faith can also be a lot smaller than that. So, for example, faith could look like being a single woman who's a follower of Jesus and is presented with the opportunity to date an incredibly attractive guy who isn't a follower of Jesus and decides not to date him because you think God's way is better. That's faith. That only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Faith could look like being in a romantic relationship with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance and having every option to have sex whenever you want without anybody at a societal level really judging you for it at all and choosing to wait because you trust God's design for sex. That only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is choosing and planning to give away significant portions of your income that you could just spend on yourself even though it means waiting for things that you want. Only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way. Faith is choosing to spend regular time reading and meditating on an ancient book of literature because you think that God might speak to you through it. That only makes sense to do if Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is choosing to have a conversation with a coworker, or a neighbor or a friend or a classmate about Jesus, knowing full well it's going to make it awkward after that conversation. That only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. It only makes sense if he's worth a little bit of awkwardness to you for your coworker to discover who he is. You see, faith is actually any time that we do something that only makes sense if Jesus is who he says he is. That's what faith is at the end of the day. We could go on with different examples of it, but I think you guys are starting to see what we mean here. It's any time we do things that only make sense in light of who Jesus is. That's what all of the people in this particular story are doing. We see all of these people that Jesus interacts with showing their faith by their decisive action, by taking action towards Jesus. I know for me, I personally find myself misunderstanding faith. And, and here's the most significant way I find myself misunderstanding faith. By thinking that faith is something you have to conjure up or muster up within yourself, right? So like when I think of faith, what I think of is the person on their hospital bed, just found out they have cancer and it's not looking good, and they just choose to sit there in that hospital bed and sing songs to Jesus. Like, that's the picture in my head for faith. And listen, I'm not taking anything away from that. I think that's an incredible example of faith. I think some people express their faith in that way, absolutely. But in my experience, the the people that I know that model faith on on a regular basis in their life, Sometimes it doesn't look like that at all. Sometimes it looks like they're terrified, and they're walking in directly to a terrifying scenario, but they're doing it with the understanding that God will be good somehow. I think it looks a lot less like being the person who people look at and go, Oh, wow, if I could just be unshakable like they are. I think it looks a lot less like that sometimes and sometimes it looks like walking directly into a scenario that we're not sure about and we're not confident about, but we're doing what we're doing because we believe Jesus is who he says he is. And we believe that he can be trusted in those scenarios. So I think it would be helpful if we stop thinking about faith as some sort of intangible feeling that we muster up because that makes it about us and our strength. Instead, what if we approached faith by simply asking the question, if I believed the things in this book, if I really believed that Jesus is who he says he is, what types of things would I approach differently in my life as a result? I think that's the question that we're called to ask from the scriptures. Um, Put another way, faith is simply trust. Faith is trust. So when we were little, chances are there were situations where we were scared or nervous to do something, and a parent or someone, a guardian, whoever, said, trust me. I've been thinking about this a lot. Because our five-year-old, Witt, uh, had surgery this week. It was nothing crazy, very routine surgery. Uh, but in the past two weeks since we told him that he was having surgery, the only thing he has been asking us ever is, is he going to have to get a shot? Because in his mind, when you go to the doctor or the hospital, you get a shot every single time. It's not true, but that's what he believes. And so he's been asking us, hey, am I going to have to get a shot? And we just kept telling him, nope, there's no needles for this, which is technically a lie because there was going to be a needle, but it was going to be after he was asleep and he wouldn't know about it. So if you guys feel like that's sinful for me to lie to my son, you could confront me on it later. But uh, what we were telling him is, but you will not have to experience a needle, right? And we just kept telling him this over and over and over again. But what I noticed is that even though he was nervous about it, every time that He would hear me or Anna tell him that he didn't have to worry about a needle. He would calm down just a little bit. It didn't alleviate all of his fears, but it did calm him down a little bit, right? Because he trusts who we are, and he trusts that we can be trusted in that moment. I think sometimes faith looks a little more like that when it comes to Jesus, I think sometimes it looks a little bit less like, you know, just being this brazen, amazing example of faith that everyone looks up to. And I think a lot more sometimes it looks like just being a little bit less terrified to walk into the unknown, trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. I think sometimes faith looks like confidence in Jesus in the face of fear. And I think if we started seeing faith that way, I, th- I think one, it would help us navigate those situations better. It, and I think two, we would feel a lot less shame over not being this idealized picture of faith that we think faith is at some times. Our faith is not, is not based on any ability in us to trust It's not based on us conjuring up an emotion in a particular moment. Our faith is not based on our faith. Our faith is based on the faithfulness of God. Our trust is based on the trustworthiness of God. It does not exist in here apart from the Holy Spirit making it true. But when we understand that God can be trusted... It starts to slowly sprout in us faith, trust, confidence that Jesus is who he says he is, even if the scenario in front of me and the circumstances in front of me are terrifying at times. That's what faith looks like. Can you imagine the feeling that this woman who was experiencing the the bleeding for 12 years, can you imagine how it felt for her in the moments when she approached Jesus? Can you imagine how fearful she was that she was going to be found out, that she was going to be called out, that she was going to bring some sort of shame or stigma on this incredible teacher of the way of God, and yet instead she walked directly into that fear because she had confidence that Jesus was who he says he was. That's what she did, and I think that's what we're called to do, too. It's not based on us. It's not based on our ability. It's not based on our maturity. It's based on the trustworthiness of God. And I don't think there is any clearer place where we see the trustworthiness of God displayed than we see at the cross. Think of Romans 8, where it says, He who did not spare his own son for us, but graciously gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? We know that God can be trusted because he didn't even withhold his own son for us. That's how we know. If he can be trusted in that, how much can he be trusted in our finances? How much can he be trusted in our circumstances? How much can he be trusted in our suffering? How much can he be trusted in our marital status? If he can be trusted in what happened on the cross, he can be trusted, period. That's who our God is. He is trustworthy. And that's where faith comes from, for followers of Jesus. Let me pray for us to that end. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that life with you is not dependent on us or our abilities or our giftings or our maturity. God, we thank you that faith is not based on us. That, in fact, is the very opposite of what faith is. Faith, rather, is based on your faithfulness. God, the fact that you have never failed to do what you promised to do You've never forgotten one of your promises towards us. God, you have never betrayed us by being somebody different than who you claim to be. God, you are consistent through the ages. You are always exactly who you claim to be. And so God, maybe my, my prayer for all of us, for our church family, is that maybe we would, we would remove our eyes a little bit from, from us and our abilities and our story and our past and our failures and our mistakes, and then we would fix our eyes on your faithfulness, to your trustworthiness. And I think so often our problem is my problem, is that I spend all my time looking at the future that is uncertain and I spend very little time looking at the past and specifically what you've done for me in the past that started at the cross and has looked like provision and faithfulness and goodness every step of the way. But God, so often I forget all of that, I forget to look at all of that and I look instead at the future and think that somehow you won't be who you've always been in the future. And so God, I just wanna confess that for me. I know that's likely the case for some other people in this room. I just wanna confess corporately that we have no reason to doubt your goodness towards us. God, you have always been who you say you are. You've always been faithful, you've always been good. Always been trustworthy. And so, God, our prayer is that you would help us to remember that. Whatever decisions we have to make this week, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, however terrifying, nerve-wracking they may be, God, our prayer is that that you would give to us faith, that you would grant us faith by calling our attention to who you are. So God, we ask this in your name, for your glory, for our good.